Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. We're going to get to the end of Mark chapter 3. And as we read this passage, I want you to think about the question on the screen. What will you do with Jesus? Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, of whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage this morning, I pray you will open our eyes and help us to answer the question in our own hearts, what have we done and what will we do with Jesus Christ? I pray that you'll help us to understand this passage, oft misunderstood in different portions of it. Lord, by your Spirit, that you'll drive these truths home into our hearts. Lord, that you will help us as we come to the end of this passage to be able to answer the most important question that will ever be posed to us in our lives. What will we do with Jesus Christ? Work in our hearts, work in our lives, speak to us by your Spirit, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we look at this passage this morning, we do need to ask ourselves some key questions that go with this question. Number one, who really is Jesus? Number two, what did he really teach? And again, I ask those questions because just as Mike read for us from the scriptures this morning, he read a really familiar passage. And often we go to familiar passages believing we know exactly what they say and missing the whole point altogether if we're not careful. So what did Jesus Christ really teach? And number three, what is the difference between Jesus being an exceptional rabbi and a prophet with sound moral teaching and Jesus being the Son of God? Mark thinks there's a huge difference. That's why he begins his gospel saying, I want to talk to you about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then finally, what do I need to do to be in a right relationship with Jesus Christ, in a right relationship with God the Father? In this passage, we're going to see different ways that people viewed Jesus Christ during his ministry. It all comes together in one passage. And the importance, there is grave importance to how we answer the question of who is Jesus Christ to you. Are there people that aren't in church this morning who know who Jesus Christ is? Do they have an impression about how he ought to work and what his teachings mean? And Are there people who look at the scriptures and especially at the gospels? And they look at a teaching like, 
Here's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And they say, yeah, I can agree with that. As long as they get to define it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, again, as long as I get to define my neighbor and decide what love is, that's okay too. Because those are, those are all good ideas. And whatsoever you would have someone do to you, you should do that to them. That sounds like good. That is good salad teaching. But without an understanding of who Jesus is, why he said these things, and how they're supposed to impact our lives, they don't do much more than other moral teaching does. And that's not what they were intended for. They weren't just intended to make the whole world a bunch of better people. These are instructions for God's children. And Jesus is going to talk a little bit about that. It was C.S. Lewis who popularized this phrase, but he took it right out of the scripture. And it was a phrase that, that... existed before this. When you look at Jesus Christ, when you look at what he really taught and what he said, you can only come up with three conclusions. Either he's a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's the Lord. And as we live our lives, we're going to do the same thing. Either there's people who look at this book and they say, this is full of fairy tales and it's crazy. And the stuff it says about Jesus Christ, nobody could be like that. And so they think he's a lunatic. The Pharisees are going to come by and they're going to say, he's not a lunatic, he's a liar. Beware. Are there people that believe this book is just full of lies? Are there people that believe that your Christian faith is nothing but a crutch to help you get through the difficulties of life? You need to understand what's being said as they look at the scriptures and as we look at the scriptures. But third, if he's not a lunatic and he's not a liar, then he's who he said he was. And Mark is writing his whole gospel to teach us that he is the Son of God. This quote from C.S. Lewis really helps to bring it home for us. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's one thing you must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him the Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he is the Son of God. By claiming to be God, Jesus Christ left his hearers with only those three options. Either he was God, or something's wrong with what he's saying, and something is wrong with what he's teaching. And we have four Gospels. The main goal of those four Gospels is to teach us what it means when it says Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Mark brought that out. We've looked at it over and over again. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Son of God. And the rest of this book goes by out to prove it. In every aspect of what he did, of what he said, of his goals in life, of his submission to the will of the Father. He is the Son of God. John, in his gospel, put it this way in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life through his name. 
You see, John goes as far as to say, what you do with Jesus Christ determines your eternal destiny. This whole book is about what you do with Jesus Christ determines your eternal destiny. And it's something to be taken soberly and serious because our world does not. And so you need to look again and say, what am I doing with Jesus Christ? Are there people sitting in good, solid, Bible-believing churches that are going to spend an eternity in hell? I never get up with the truth that the, the burden of that does not crush my heart. Because there are people who have heard things preached, heard things preached inaccurately from pulpits, and they believe they're okay, and they're not okay according to what Jesus Christ said. They're not okay because they don't have the picture of who he is and how he works and what it takes to be right with God. So I asked you that question this morning, and I want you to consider it as we go through this set of verses this morning. What does it take to have a right relationship with Jesus Christ and thereby a right relationship with God the Father? We need to find out from Jesus Christ's words and teachings in the words of this book, what does it take to be right with God? Because that is the most important thing you will ever settle. And there are people that were very close to Jesus Christ, even in his day, that didn't have it right. Look at our passage this morning. Number one, you're going to see that Jesus Christ was doubted by the greater part of his family. Verses 19 and 20. And speaking of Christ here, he said, Then he went home. Now, get the right what's happening here. In the Greek, it really means, it says specifically and literally, then he went to the house. He didn't go home to Nazareth. He went back to Capernaum, to the home base of his ministry. And we see that as we're going to go through the rest of this gospel. But he went back to Capernaum, probably to the house of Peter and Andrew, where it all started, where the ministry took place. And he went there, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And again, get this crowd in perspective. Why is this crowd coming? Jesus Christ was, he was not a human teacher, he was the son of God teaching, he was the greatest teacher who ever lived. Were they coming solely for the teaching of Jesus Christ? What has Mark already told us? They came because of the miracles. They came because they wanted to be healed. They were amazed by his teaching, but they were bringing people who if they just reached out and touched his garment would be healed like that. And so the crowds keep coming whenever they find out he's there. And it says in verse 20 that the so many came and they were so busy that they could not even eat. That's not even the American way. There's no lunch break. Not time, there's not time for dinner. Jesus is ministering to one after another after another. He's teaching and preaching and giving out the gospel of the kingdom to everybody who comes. So verse 21 tells us, and when his family heard it, what did they hear? He'd been gone for a while. He was out in the wilderness. Now he's back in Capernaum. And his family hears, they're, just, they're being crushed by the mobs. They, they don't have time to even eat. And what is their reaction? Look at what it says here. And when his family heard it, his brothers, his sisters, they went out to seize him. The idea is they went out to get a hold of him and rescue him from what's going on, to get him out of there. And it says here, because, for they were saying, who was saying? His family was saying, he's out of his mind. He's lost his mind. Did Jesus' brothers and sisters immediately believe he was the Christ? Can you imagine what it was like to live with Jesus Christ as a brother and sister. How many of you, don't raise your hand on this, but how many of you were the bad kid at home, okay? And how many of you had a brother and sister that they were the good kid? They could do no wrong. Now, my, my kids will tell you who they think each one of those were, and they're wrong, but you know, they, they would tell you that. But 
when you were growing up with Jesus Christ, who was the good kid? He did no sin. Neither was Jesus Christ never lied once. Do you think his brothers and sisters could ever say that? Jesus Christ never disobeyed. Jesus Christ never got a bad report from the teacher coming home. I, 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 was, I laughed as I was studying this. I came across the Dennis. Any of you know Dennis the Menace cartoons? Came across the Dennis the Menace cartoon. And there he is at the end of the day. And the teacher's putting a note in his backpack. And Dennis looks at the teacher and says, I just need to warn you, my parents have said they've had enough of those notes. Jesus was never in that circumstance. But the, the brothers and sisters were. But did they understand who he was? Now when it says here that the family thought he was out of his mind, who is it excluding? Who doesn't think from the family that Jesus is out of his mind? Mary knows. We won't take the time, but look back at Luke chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. The, the angel told Mary exactly who Jesus was. Exactly what's going on. But the brothers and sisters are looking and say, we got to help him. we got to get him out of there because he's out of his mind. He's lost his mind and they're, gonna, they're just going to crush him to death. They're going to kill him. Did the brothers and sisters not understand the miracles that were taking place? They saw him. They heard about him. They didn't believe. They didn't know what to do with Jesus Christ. And there are folks that we're going to come across in our lives that they've heard about Jesus. They've seen folks that seem to have their lives changed a little bit, but they just don't know what to do with Jesus Christ. Now, the wonderful thing about this is we're going to find in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit's going to do a work in the hearts of his siblings, and they're going to put their faith and trust in Christ, but it's not going to happen until after the crucifixion and the resurrection. So here they are, coming to Jesus Christ, saying, he's lost his mind, we've got to save him from all this. So they're packing up from Nazareth, and they're moving on to Capernaum. That's why you've got kind of a a, a story within a story here. They say, we've got to go save him from himself, he's lost his mind. They're leaving Nazareth, they're headed down to Capernaum. It's not a huge journey, but there's a gap of time. And in that gap of time, Mark fills in the rest of the story. Now actually, you've got to take a step back and go all the way to Matthew, but let's look at the first verses in Mark. Mark chapter 33, verses 22 and 23. Beginning in 22, it says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he has cast out demons. He's not only doubted by his family, but now he's got to deal with his foes. The scribes are coming down there. And Matthew tells us this about why they came. You need to understand exactly why this is so important to his foes. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 and 23. Same story, more details. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. Again, that's part of Mark's story about he's being crushed by all these folks. They're coming for healing. Why is he being crushed? Because they got to touch his garment. They want to be healed. And they know if they can only get a hold of his garment. And then a part of those that come, there's a demon-oppressed man he's brought. And it says, And he healed him. Don't ever get so accustomed to the scriptures, that you lose the significance of what happened there. Here is this man who is blind, he is mute, he is demon-possessed, and Jesus Christ healed him. At the touch of Jesus Christ, he can see, he can talk for the first time. He's no longer demon-possessed. And the people looked, and they didn't miss it. What does it say in the end of this verse in Matthew chapter 12? It says, and all the people were amazed. 
And this is why you get such a reaction from the scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem. All the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? They came to be healed. They were confronted with the truth. And they were starting to wonder if he was who Mark said he was. And the scribes and the Pharisees were having none of that. Now, what is the problem? It says they came down from Jerusalem. All right, Jerusalem's here. Galilee's up here, so it's not talking about north and south. It's talking about here they are in Jerusalem, several thousand feet above sea level, going down into Galilee, about 700 feet below sea level. It's an interesting picture. I'm not sure it's what we're supposed to take out of it, but it's almost like here are these stuffy religious people coming down out of their ivory tower to set things straight for the one who's healing the masses. And so they come down and they come to Galilee and they've got a problem. Can they deny the miracles that Jesus Christ is doing? People are touching his garment and being healed. And this isn't just minor things. Deaf people, dumb people, demon-possessed people, crippled people. They're being healed. And they're walking away whole. And people are just so amazed. They're flooding in. And it's beginning to do what it's supposed to do. What was the purpose of the miracles? Was the purpose of the miracles so that Jesus could get a bigger crowd than Joel Olstein? No, it wasn't to pull people in. It was to authenticate the message. And it started authenticating the message in the hearts of people that came. They started looking and saying, if he can do that, if just touching his garment can heal me, maybe this amazing teaching is something I need to pay more close attention to. Maybe he is the son of David. Maybe he is the Messiah. That struck fear in the hearts of the scribes and Pharisees. Because if he's the Messiah, where is their power going? Jesus has taken it all. If he's going to bring in the kingdom, he's been pretty clear so far that they have no part in that kingdom. So they have to do something. So in their haste, in their trying to figure out what in the world they can do to justify the fact that he's able to cast out demons and heal, but he's not the son of God, look at what they say. They said he's possessed by Beelzebub. By the first century, that idea of Beelzebub, and there's a whole history behind it. I'll give it to you sometime, but I'll go over time again if I do that now. But the Jews began calling Satan Beelzebub. And so as they look at Jesus, they say he's possessed by the devil himself. And by the prince of demons, Satan, he casts out demons. They looked and said, there's got to be a power from somewhere. People see it in action. We can't say it's God's power or we're in trouble. That that erodes the very foundation of who we are. So it's got to be Satan who's doing this. He is working by the power of Satan. Can you imagine? The Son of God who never did anything wrong. Who's compassionately loving. Who's meeting with people. Who never gets irritated and says, okay, that's enough and closes the door. He spends all night at times working and healing and blessing and teaching over and over again to people who were basically using him at times. Using him for healing. He even brought it up after the feeding of the 5,000. The crowds all came back again because they thought, hey, another free meal. And he's like, no, I'm not going to teach you for that purpose. But Jesus is doing all of these things. And then they come and they say, you know what? He's doing it by the power of Satan. His results were immediate, complete, undeniable. They had to come up with something. And so as they slander him, and as they panic and blame what he's doing on the power of the devil, he immediately responds to them. Look at verse 23. 
And he called them to him. Who did he call to him? Here's those scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus doesn't shy away from the circumstance. He calls them to him. In the presence of all these people who are still crowding around. And he says to them this. And he said to them in parables. Why did Jesus teach in parables? So the unbelieving people wouldn't get it. And he would teach the disciples later what it was. But the truth is there. Although this parable is not too difficult to understand. The Pharisees are going to get it. The people standing around are going to get it. So look what he says to them. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. Jesus Christ takes this ludicrous idea brought by the scribes and the Pharisees and he looks and he says, does this make any sense to y'all? If a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. How'd that work for the Romans when they were divided against themselves? There is no Roman Empire today. It's coming back in a certain way, but we'll talk about that another time. But you you look and you see it, it doesn't work, and they know that. If a house is divided against itself, it won't be able to stand. You can't have this internal strife and this internal struggle. And he goes as far as to say, and if Satan has risen up against himself. Now, why can he say that? Jesus is going around doing what? He's casting demons out. Who's wanting those demons in? Satan. Jesus is casting them out. Not only that, he's healing people. Does that have anything to do with this? Do you ever consider the fact that Jesus Christ is not only casting out demons, but even as he is healing people, it's going against Satan's kingdom. Satan doesn't want to heal and help you. Why do people get sick today? It goes all the way back to Genesis. When God finished everything, he looked out and he said, it was, it was good. People weren't going to be sick at that point. Creation wasn't going to be all messed up. But because of our sin and because of what happened, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment, but because of all that happened back then, sin came in. And when people look at you and say, I can't believe in a loving God and he would allow all this, it's not God's fault. It's sin. And as Jesus is healing sickness, he's reversing the effect of the kingdom of Satan in people's lives. He's forgiving sin. He's healing sickness. He's casting out demons. And Jesus looks at him and says, if what I'm doing is in the power of Satan, Satan's in big trouble because his kingdom's a mess. And that's not what's happening here. He goes on further. Another part of his parable in verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. The strong man's house. What is he talking about? Jesus Christ says, I've come here to seek and to save the lost and that's the strong man's house that's belonged to Satan for way too long. And then he looks and he says, and if I'm going to fix those things, if I'm going to plunder his goods, I can't do anything unless I bind the strong man and Jesus Christ is looking at Satan and said, that's exactly what you're seeing happening before your very eyes. Who else can do that? Do do the scribes and Pharisees know what Jesus is claiming when he talks about the strong man? Sure they do. Only God can bind Satan in that way. And Jesus Christ looks and says, that's what I've come to do. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. 
Then indeed he may cast out demons. He may heal diseases brought about in our world by sin. He may forgive the sins of those who come before him. But only after he binds him. Only someone stronger than Satan can do that. And as Jesus wields his power, it is a testimony to everyone around him. I am the Son of God. This is what it means to be the Son of God. But he doesn't stop there. Because this question has got to be answered. It doesn't matter if you are there using religion to try to make you feel better, like folks that came to get healed. It doesn't matter if you're opposed to Jesus Christ, like the scribes and the Pharisees. Or if you claim to be a believer. You've got to ask, answer the question, what will I do with Jesus Christ to be in a right relationship? And so he's going to continue on and he's going to say this concerning the Pharisees and those who have brought this accusation. Truly I say to you, verse 28, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. This passage has been the source of a lot of unnecessary confusion. You ever have somebody come to you? I think good Christian people come to me, almost in tears, and saying, I don't know if I've committed the unpardonable sin or not. How do I know if I've committed the unpardonable sin? Because Jesus said himself that everything will be forgiven except for this sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And if, if I've had difficulty at times, if I've had a hard heart, if I've cursed God because of my circumstances, if I've cursed the Spirit of God because of my circumstances, is it too late for me? What is Jesus talking about in this passage? Jesus is looking and putting it in context where we always have to go back. Finish the context here. It says, for they were saying, who was saying? End of this passage. It says, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Who was guilty of that? The scribes and the Pharisees. Why were they guilty of that? And here's the key to understanding this whole blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is ministering to people. Jesus Christ is preaching the truth. Jesus Christ is healing and casting out demons as God's stamp of approval to the Spirit of God working in his ministry to say, this is the Son of God. And the scribes and the Pharisees refused to believe it. They were hard-hearted. It didn't matter what he said or what he did in his ministry from this time forward. They were going to destroy him. Remember the passage earlier in chapter 3? They were seeking to kill him. They were seeking to destroy him. And what this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was, was taking the work of the Holy Spirit and God and putting his stamp of approval on Jesus Christ and his message and attributing it to the devil. Attributing it to somebody else. Being so hard-hearted that you were unwilling to ever acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord and the Son of God. And that's unpardonable. And he looks at these scribes and these Pharisees and he said, that's exactly where you are. And people are going to do all kinds of despicable things and the blood of Christ is going to cover that. You can sin in all kinds of ways, he's saying, but when I take those sins upon myself at Calvary, my blood is sufficient, it will cover that. But if you reject who I am and attribute it to Satan and his power, there's no hope for you. When the hardness of your heart comes to the point where you will not come to Christ for who he is and you've rejected Christ, there's no way because Scripture tells us that neither is there salvation in any other. For there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And if you won't come to grips with who Jesus Christ is and what he did, you will never 
have eternal life. And so he looks at these scribes and these Pharisees and he's saying, here's where you are. And there's no hope for you. Because you've hardened your heart to the point that you will not accept who I am. And the whole thesis of the book of Mark, what's Mark about? I forgot, well, that's where the banners are there. Sacrifice and service. And Jesus said, what about his service? That he would give his life a ransom for many as part of that service. And if you don't accept that, there's no hope. And then he's going to do something very interesting. His family arrives. All this is happening with the scribes. His family's on the way there. They're going to rescue him. Can you imagine trying to rescue Jesus? He's got it under control. But they don't understand who he is. And so they show up and look at verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. This is everyday stuff happening. Jesus is in the house. There's so many people, you can't get near it. His mother and his brothers and his sister, they show up and they're going to rescue him. But how do they rescue him? They can't even get in the house. So they have to send word to the one that they're rescuing. So that he'll come out. Isn't that something wrong with that? But he's in there. And people do what they normally do. They're trying to be helpful. They look at Jesus and they say, you know, your mother and your brothers and your family, they're all out there waiting for you. And what are they expecting? Time for an interlude. I'm guessing that crowd that was crushing him to get close to him was even going to be willing to part ways a little bit so that he can go through and check things out with family. Is that what Jesus does? It says in verse 33, And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Put yourself in the crowd for a minute. How many of you know who your family is? This is the greatest teacher who ever lived. And they say, Your your mother and your brothers are out there. Who are they? Now, has Jesus forgot? Has he really lost his mind and forgotten who his family is? Now, this is a teachable moment. It's here to teach us something as well. Jesus is using the everyday things that take place to take people from where they are and point them to the truth. A simple request from his family saying, hey, we're out here, we're seeking for you. Actually, we're going to scoop you up and take you home because you don't know any better and you can't keep this up. And Jesus looks and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? And what's the crowd thinking? Well, we just saw him. It's Mary, and then later he's going to list all the the, the stepbrothers and the sister and sisters, all those kind of things. But Jesus goes on. He doesn't respond with what they thought they were going to respond. Jesus takes this and he answers them, looking about at those who sat around him. Now, who's sitting around him? Again, it's not everybody sitting around him. He's not looking at the scribes and the Pharisees when he says this. But there are people who are legitimately believing that Jesus is who he said he was. There are people who believe in what he's doing, in the message that he's preaching. And he says, looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my, bro- my mother and my brothers. And probably some in the, in the crowd started thinking, maybe he has lost his mind. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He's answering the question for them. He's talking not about the physical, but the spiritual. And he's looking at this spiritual family. Those who've come to me, they are my mother. They are my brothers. They are the children of God. But he's going to define it even further than that as he defines his family. Look at verse 35. For whoever... I debated whether to do this or not. 
but I'm going to do it because I think it's important that you understand what he's saying here. He says, for whoever raised his hand, prayed a prayer, and walked down the aisle and signed a card, they're my brother and sister. Is that what he says? And I bring that up because in evangelicalism today, in churches I grew up in, I was told, you want to be, how many, this is how a lot of invitations were given. This is how a lot of invitations to walk the aisle were given. And some of you may have walked an aisle and and legitimately come to Christ, and I'm not knocking that at all. But when I grew up in churches, it was, everybody bow your head, close your eyes. If you want to go to heaven instead of hell, raise your hand. Who in their right mind wants to go to hell? People will tell you they do, but you know what? Either they're so hard-hearted that they're with the Pharisees, or they don't really understand what hell is. Because when you understand that hell is for all of eternity, when you understand that hell is separation from God, when you understand that hell is a place where you pay for the sins that you would not put at the foot of the cross, you don't want to go there. I remember as a kid, I didn't want to go there. How many of you prayed over and over and over again the sinner's prayer because you thought, i got to get this right. I don't want to go there. Is that what salvation is all about? you got to figure out, what am I going to do with Jesus Christ? And so Jesus looks and says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now be careful with that. Say, oh, pastor's about to teach Lordship salvation. You know, if you just get your, your life right and you do the right works, you can come to me. That's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, he's going to build on this thought in the next chapter. We're going to look at the parable of the sower. There's been more misinterpretation of that parable because you don't understand this piece right here than almost, almost any other parable in the New Testament. But Jesus Christ looks, he says, whoever does the will of God, the followers of Jesus, those who belong to his spiritual family, have embraced him as Lord, not lunatic, not liar, but Lord. And he's saying, this is what you're saying. You're looking and saying, I'm obeying the will of God, and what is God's will? First, Second Peter chapter 3, 9, God's not willing that any should perish, but what? The folks should come to repentance. See, sometimes we don't understand what salvation's all about because we forget that repentance is a part of salvation. When he says they obeyed the will of God, he's talking about they obeyed the first step, believing in the Son, whom the Spirit bore witness to so that they could receive eternal life. The things that Mike read about. Either you believe he's who he said he was, you believe he died like he did, taking your sin upon him, you believe that you need to put your faith and trust in him and him alone, which is God's will for the first step in your relationship with him, or you will spend eternity in hell. And so Jesus looks and said, you've got to do the will of God. You've got to receive that. You also need to do the will of God in knowing who he is. You see, what is sin? Sin's a little tiny word, and, but if you have to define it, it can be hard to define. What, 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 we know sin's bad things. Well, is that all sin is? Well, murder and, and adultery and you go on and on. And, yeah, those are sins, but what is sin in its very heart and nature? Sin in its very heart and nature is any failure to conform to the moral law of God. Any failure to conform to what God wants you to be and do. It's either in acts The things that you do, or, careful, it's in attitudes. The wrong attitudes about what God wants you to do. You can't be standing on the outside and sitting on the inside. That's sin. And and our very nature, when things in our very nature are selfish and self-centered and go against God, it's sin. 
And so you've got to look at that. And Jesus said here, you've got to repent of those things. Without the repentance, there is no forgiveness of sin. Repentance is changing the mind. It's not changing your actions and your attitudes yourself. It's not coming to the point with, okay, God, I fixed myself, so now I can be accepted of you. It's saying, I don't want to live in sin. I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about him. I want God's will to be done in my life. That's what repentance is. Sin is I'm doing my own thing. Repentance is I want to do God's thing. And until we get our mindset there, we can raise our hand and pray our prayers and walk our aisles. But there's no, if we give those folks to sign the card, a guarantee of eternal life, then we need to apologize to the rich young ruler. He came and said, what can I do to have eternal life? And Jesus Christ pointed to his riches and he said, I've kept all the commandments. And he pointed to his riches. He said, there's your God. And he walked away, dejected, sad. Because he wasn't giving up his riches. He wasn't going to serve. He wasn't going to do God's thing first. And we have to have the right perspective on who Jesus is as we come to him. He is Lord. Tony Evans, I love his quote here. Don't beat me up if you don't like Tony Evans, but I love his quote on sin here. Sin makes us self-centered and self-dependent instead of God-centered and God-dependent. The less you need God, the more sinful you become. Because you're trying to function independently of the creator. Why did we need Christ? Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Satan comes, and he comes to Eve, and he says, I know you've been told, follow God's way, but let me tell you how your way will help you out. You eat that fruit, the fruit of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you will become like God. And it sounded pretty good to Eve, but Scripture tells Eve was deceived. And then she took of the fruit and she ate it. She disobeyed God. Sin came into the world. And then Adam took of the fruit. And don't miss it, Adam knew exactly what he was doing. Don't take any preaching from some folks who say, oh, Adam had to eat the fruit because he loved Eve and he didn't want to be. And Adam wanted to be like God. And Scripture tells us that. He knew what he was doing. And sin came into the world because we didn't acknowledge God for who he was. We wanted to, be like, we wanted to make our own decisions. We wanted the life to revolve around us instead of around him. All of that sin. And you've got to repent of that and say, God, I want you to be the center of my universe. That's where you belong, not me. That's Repentance. Now, do you need to change? Yes, you do. You know what that's called? Sanctification. How many of you are still in that process? If you didn't raise your hand, either you fell asleep or you're lying to me. Okay, because we're becoming more and more like Christ as the Holy Spirit reveals to us where we are. But that happens after salvation. But salvation starts when we look and say, I want to repent and I want to trust Christ. My sin debt's been paid by Jesus Christ. I want to be what God wants me to be. And that's why Jesus is able to say, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my mother and my sister. Paul put it this way. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. He puts those two together. Repentance. Jesus is Lord, not me. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and that's a picture of the whole salvation experience through Calvary and the resurrection. So if you'll put your faith and trust in that and that alone, not your works, not the things you're doing, you can have eternal life. And so the question is again, what will you do with Jesus? Jesus knew that. John chapter 8, verse 31, he said to his disciples, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will sign a decision card. No, you'll keep my commandments. You want to know, you're struggling with, did I say the right thing? Did I do the right thing? It's not necessarily what you said and did, it's what happened in here. Did, did you repent and turn to God and say, I want your way, not my way. I want to be forgiven for going my way. 
and I trust what Jesus Christ did for me, then stop praying the prayer and really trust. If you're praying 14 times, you don't trust. Trust him. He said he'd save you if you'll do just that. And that's where John put it this way in 1 John. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. If you say you know him and you don't live for him, I'm not saying perfect. There are no perfect people in here. And it starts right here. But if you're not endeavoring to live for him and the spirit of God is not working in your life to make you more like Jesus Christ, then something's wrong with where you came. Something's wrong with your picture of who is this Jesus. And we need to get this right. It's so important that we get this right as we go forward with Jesus Christ. And so the question becomes, what will you do with Jesus Christ? Your eternal destiny is at stake. Read another quote that we'll finish with this. It says, in order to follow Christ, we have to deny ourselves, crucify ourselves, and lose ourselves. The full, inexorable demand of Jesus Christ is now laid bare. He does not call us to a sloppy half-heartedness, but a vigorous, absolute commitment. He calls us to make him Lord. Why does Christianity look like it does today? Why did some of you come for churches where people were always beating you over your head with a list of do's and do nots? It's because people have come forward and they haven't made Christ what he's supposed to be. They haven't truly repented and gotten saved. And you can't make people like that look like Christ. It only happens when you have that right relationship with him and the spirit begins working in your heart. Your eternal destiny is at stake. Will you embrace Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, and the Lord? Let's pray. Father, this passage is so critical to where we are with you. I pray that you'll help us to see Jesus Christ for who he is, that you'll help us to come with true saving faith. Lord, that we won't just come for a fire escape from hell, that we won't just come so you'll straighten out all the details of our lives. Lord, that we'll come to straighten out our relationship with an eternal God through Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you'll do a work in our hearts, help us to understand what true repentance is, And Lord, if there are those in here who have not really understood Jesus Christ for who he is, I pray that your spirit will work in their hearts and today might be the day that they acknowledge Jesus Christ for who he is, place their faith and trust completely in him and turn to him for salvation and a right relationship with God, that Jesus Christ may be able to look out at them and say, Behold, my brother or my sister, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.